Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're in a paper Bible, find Psalms. Go left a few books. You'll find Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 5. Leaving off from chapter 4, we're going to look at a whole new thing today. We're going to issue a warning to every single one of us and to us corporately as a church. We're going to issue a warning to your family. We're going to issue a warning to the business or, the, or any other organization that you're a part of that you're trying to accomplish a dream or a vision or a goal. And we're going to be talking about enemies. Now, we left off in chapter 4 with the enemy lurking outside of this newly developing wall around Jerusalem and Israel. And it is a vision, a passion that God placed in Nehemiah's life. And Nehemiah conveyed that into the people of Israel. And they're building this wall. It's an incredible thing that's happening. God's performing a miracle. He's doing the supernatural in their midst. And he's using them as a part of it. Now, to get us to where we're going, let's look at the closing of t the text last week. We talked about multitasking, that while we're doing what God wants us to do, we also have to be on guard. And so in chapter 4, beginning in verse 20, we left off with this. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor the brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when we went for water. So here's the story. God is building a wall around Israel, and uh, those who lived in Jerusalem are participating in building the wall under Nehemiah's leadership and direction. And so now he says, all of you Israelites who live outside the walls of Jerusalem, we want you to come in and stay here as well to help us protect this thing that we're building. Now I want to just make a point right here. What Nehemiah was in charge of is helping the nation of Israel build the spiritual side of their existence. He was trying to help them understand that when we focus everything on the physical side of our life, we are doomed for failure. We are destined for the enemy having victory in our life. You see, the nation of Israel had Jerusalem as the center, as the spiritual um, benchmark for who they were in their relationship with God. Inside these walls would be the temple where sacrifices were made. Inside is where the priest would live, where the king would live. Inside these walls, this, this kingdom surrounded by a wall represented the spiritual side of a nation. And it was crumbled. The walls were down. The gates were burned. So Nehemiah is responsible for building back the spiritual side of a whole nation. So today we're going to issue a warning to ourselves as God's people, to our church, our family, our careers, and us as individuals. And it's a loud warning, and here it is, that there is an enemy who stands lurking, trying to win, have victory in your life and the enemy will rise up when and how you least expect him and he will be wrapped in a particular and very familiar package because this enemy is the one who looks back at you in the mirror of the morning now 
Who all looked at the mirror this morning before you came to church? Okay. Most everybody. Okay. I, I raised two daughters, two beautiful girls. And, 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 and it was funny watching them grow up. When they turned about 12, when they started caring what they looked like, it, wherever a mirror was, they paused and check it out. Okay, you know what I'm saying? You, you know, you've seen that too. You, we'd be at the mall. You walk in front of a storefront. If it was a reflective storefront, they're checking themselves out. I used to laugh. What do you, and I'd say, I just, what are you looking at? Oh, no, nothing. I ain't looking at Oh, yes, you were. I don't know if you're admiring or disappointed, but you were looking. Okay? Now, I want to tell you this morning that every morning when you look into the mirror, there's somebody who stares back at you, and it's you. Okay? And there's two sides of you. Okay? We're going to see that today, and there's a war that's, wa- uh, that's waging and raging in your life between the two yous, and we're going to talk about that today. So tell your neighbor, beware of the guy in the mirror. Now, this enemy is the enemy within, and that's the title of the message, because here's the deal. Everybody look for just a second. When the enemy can't find traction, when the enemy can't find an inroad to destroy you or whatever organization you're a part of or your family, if he can't do it from the outside, he'll move up close and personal. He'll find a way to get in and become the enemy within, and he'll find a way to conquer you from within. Point number one is temptation leading to justification. I'll simplify that phrase by saying we've got to recognize that there is an enemy within. In verses 1 through 5, we read this in Nehemiah chapter 5. Then there was a great outcry from the people. (laughs) As if that's not bad enough. It says, and their wives. You know it gets bad. You know, Nehemiah, a bunch of dudes complaining. He's like, grow up. Okay, let's just press on. But now the wives are engaged. And men, when the wives start crying out, you're a smart man when you listen a little bit because the women are crying out. Okay? So women, if you ever want to get the pastor's attention, don't do this. But if you ever want to get the pastor's attention, don't do it one at a time because you just sound like you're whining. But if you have a collective group of women and you all start crying out, the pastor's going to listen if he's a smart man. All right, so now Nehemiah listens, and here's what he hears. In verse 2, he says, There were those who said, With our sons and daughters, we are many, and we must obtain grain in order to eat and stay alive. And there were others who said, We are putting up our fields, our vineyards, our houses as collateral in order just to obtain grain during this famine. Then there were those who said, we have borrowed money to pay our taxes to the king on our fields and on our vineyards. And now, though we share the same flesh and blood as our fellow countrymen and our children are just like their children, still we have found it necessary to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have been subjected to slavery while we were powerless to help since our fields and our vineyards now belong to other people. So keep in mind, the text is this. The people from the outside who were uh, agrarian, they were farmers, they had, uh, they had animals and, 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 and produce, and, and they had trades, and now Nehemiah's called them in. So they're not doing what they normally do to provide for their family. Not only that, but there's a famine in the land. So it's a double whammy. So they're saying, listen, we, we don't even have a way to provide for our family. So what happens is now there's wealthy Jews in the mix. And the wealthy Jews realize there's some, uh, some, some Jews who are impoverished who need help. And they say, oh, you need some resources? Well, it just so happens I have some. Okay, so I'm going to loan you some. Now there's going to be interest involved. And if you don't have any money to pay it back, no big deal. I'll take the deed to your property. It's no big deal. Now the problem with that is this. 
In the Bible, there's very clear instruction about loaning brothers uh, under God in the kingdom money at an interest rate. We're not supposed to do that. We're just not. Okay? And there's also instruction in God's word. God is very clear about slavery. God is very clear about what they were doing that was wrong. Now, we have to look at this. And I know Nehemiah is thinking when he hears it, how does this even happen? It's like when you hear of a, of a pastor who's had an adulterous relationship with somebody, and you say, how did that happen? When you hear about, um, about somebody who's the treasurer, say, of the church, who has embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from the church, and you're like, how does that happen? And you've got your own scenario in your mind that you wonder, how does that happen? It's like the old story of the frog that's in the kettle. You put him in a kettle of cold water, he's swimming around, he's in his happy little home. All right? You put that kettle on a fire, you begin to heat it up. Now all of a sudden he acclimates. He morphs into this frog that enjoys warm water. You let him stay in warm water for a little while, you heat it up a little more. Now all of a sudden the frog realizes I'm living the, the, the high life, I'm living in a hot tub. Okay, and he's, he's, he adapts to it, he survives in it, but then all of a sudden the temperature rises to boiling temperature and the frog dies and it's a boiled frog. He didn't see it coming because it came one degree at a time. Now listen to me, that's the way it happens with the enemy within. One step at a time, there's a temptation that comes in, and then there's justification that follows. You see, the rich Jews justified what they were doing to the poor Jews by simply saying, they're in need, we have provision for their need. So what's wrong with helping our fellow Jews, okay? We'll give them grain to eat, and they'll give us everything that they own, all right? They justified the temptation. Here's how that happens. When the value of sin becomes greater than the value of holiness, the enemy within is getting close to victory. You get that? I'm going to say it again because it's very true and it should alarm us. It says, I said, when the value of sin seems greater than the value of holiness, the enemy within is getting close. You see, what we do is we, we just begin to get comfortable with our sin. We get comfortable with the temptation. We, we just, all of a sudden, we're, 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 we're more concerned about what we want than what God wants for us. And, and, and sometimes we disguise it like this. We say, well, I'm just going to follow my heart, okay? Let me just go ahead and tell you, do not follow your heart. In fact, the only way you can ever follow your heart or your mind is if your mind and your heart are bathed and saturated in this book. And unless you're guarding your spiritual life, unless you're building your spiritual fortress, a wall around it, I mean, it is, it is fortified, it is protected. Unless you're doing that with God's word, you will not win when you follow your heart. You say, well, I just don't know if I believe that. Well, that's, that's fine. Take it up with God. He says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? In a more current version, the NET, it says the human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad, and who can even understand it? And so when our mind or our heart finds contradiction or debate with God's word, run far away very quickly. That's that in a nutshell. That's what we have to learn and teach ourselves how to respond. So, so we live in a world 
where the truth of God's word is under attack. And people begin to justify the temptation that they fall into. Because that's how you do it. That's how you, you justify the temptation before you. That's what allows you to dive into that thing called sin. Uh, in, in the world we live in, it looks like this. A woman's right to choose. Okay, Now that's a sensitive issue. And some would take issue with me even saying that. And, and I, 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 the woman did have the right to choose when she got pregnant. Okay, that was her choice. Okay, now, now she wants another choice to terminate a life that she's caused. Okay, that she's contributed to. Oh, well, now, Brother Joel, what about rape and incest? Oh, less than 1%. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about generally speaking, I'm talking about that issue. We live in a world now where, where sexual identity crisis is everywhere. Girls, I'm not sure if I'm a girl. I think I might have been born a boy. No. I'm a boy, I, I think I should have been born a girl. No. Well, I'm a boy, I like boys. No. I'm a girl, I like girls. No. We, let's just call it what it is, okay? But we live in a world that wants to justify, and you've heard the justification for a boy that, that likes boys or a boy that wants to be a girl. Well, I, you know, all of our life, you know, he played with dolls. So what? There's nothing, I played with dolls. They're called G.I. Joe, Okay. Nothing wrong with a doll. And if I would have played with a Barbie, who cares? But when you take that and you justify this position, it says God in his greatness has designed me to be like I am. He's designed you to be like he designed you to be. But you have a sin nature and you don't embrace the sin nature. You see what God calls a sin nature and you let Jesus restore you to where he originally designed you to be. Amen, Brother Joel. Now, so we live in a world then, this is what it looks like, and this is what it looked like in Nehemiah 5. Isaiah 5, 20 says, now there are those who call evil good and good evil, and, and those are as good as dead. There are those who turn darkness into light and light into darkness, who turn bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. Proverbs 21, 2 says, all of a person's ways, they seem right in their own opinion, but the Lord evaluates the motivation of their heart. Have you ever, have you had those conversations where people actually defend a sinful position? I mean, they just jump in, man, I got to, I'm going to unload some defense on my position. And meanwhile, God's saying, time out. I don't really care at all about your opinion. All I care about is your life. And I created you with a purpose and a plan. And I want it to align itself not with your opinion or anybody else's opinion unless your opinion or their opinion align with my opinion found in my word. It's just about that simple. And Now, it's been around for a long time. Anybody been tempted this week? <laughs> Look, nobody raised their hand. Okay, thank you, Bethany, me and you. Okay, uh, thank you right here, Steve, me and you, and Bethany. Okay, a few others were, you know, they did this. You know, they, I got that right there. Okay. Yeah, it's a, if you, that's a lie. Y'all tempted just a minute ago to lie about not being tempted, and you failed the test, okay? We're tempted all the time, and, and, and it looks so good. It's so alluring. Listen, it's always been that way, okay? Because temptation, for just, justification for temptation comes because our enemy within patterns our ultimate enemy who is without who is Satan himself? And this is what it looks like. In this book, there's two pages of perfect conditions when God created the garden. Two good pages, man. Okay, Adam and Eve naked in the garden, life is good. All right, walking in the coolness of the day with God who created them. Naming the animals, having dominion over it all. Two stinking pages. 
And the rest of this book, the rest of this book is God making right what we destroyed in one page, chapter 3 of Genesis. How? Because the enemy came in, and the Bible says he's more crafty than all of the animals. He's smooth. He's subtle. He's calculated and controlled. He's beautiful and alluring, and he knows how to present a package that does not align itself with God and yet make it more attractive than what God has authored. I mean, God said, you can have any of it. You can eat them. all the trees of the garden. You, man, we're going to be, it's going to be awesome, but just there's one tree over there. Stay away from that one tree. What does Satan do? <laughs> Listen, he begins to contort and distort God's word. Didn't, he didn't really say that. And, and Eve was like, well, he kind of said that. And he kind of said, we can't have any, we can't take of any of the trees. And he didn't say that either. And now she's confused. And while she's confused, then he comes in and he goes, in fact, he's not going to kill you. I mean, you're the only two he has. Come on. Well, yeah, I didn't really thought about that. Next thing you know, bam. And they fail. And guess what? Because they fail, Scripture says, you fail and I fail. We're products of that. And so from that fall, the enemy who began without has now taken up residence also. And he's become the enemy within. It's under the curse of mankind. Now you say, well, I just don't know if I believe about this dichotomy of human beings. I just don't believe that there's really two parts of me. Okay? I just don't know if there's really a spiritual warfare going on between my flesh body and my spiritual side. Okay, fine. Take it up with God. He says in Galatians Chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh, our body, pinch yourself. You got one. Pinch yourself right there. Okay. My flesh, he says, sets its desire against the spirit. You see? There's a fight right here. Okay. And then he says, and the spirit is against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, now here, let me explain. Let me break this down. So, so you were born with a flesh body and a dead spirit, okay? Cursed to death, spiritually and physically. And then hopefully, it's happened to everybody in here. I venture to say not, but maybe. At some point in your life, the Holy Spirit invited you, convicted your heart, and compelled you with this truth that you are really sinful before God, and He loves you anyway. And then in that truth, he made a provision. He says, I don't just love you in word. I love you in deed. I came to earth and died for your sin. And if you will receive Jesus, me, God, in your life, I will wash away your sin. I will, I will enlighten your spirit and bring your spirit alive. It's called being born again. Okay? And all of a sudden, you got this spiritual person living redeemed right with God in Jesus living inside of you. The unfortunate thing, it's riding around in this old, unredeemed flesh container. And there's a battle going on between the spirit of who you are as a believer and the flesh that rides around, that carries your spirit around. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he got it well. I call it the Dr. Seuss passage. Romans chapter 7, 15 says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate to, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This keeps on going. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, there's Dr. Seuss. You thought he was a new. He, he copied from Paul. Okay? Now, here's the thing. It's the same for all of us. You can pretend it's not the same for you. You can pretend that you have it all together and your flesh and your spirit are in alignment with each other. But I'm telling you, there's a battle that, that rages in your life. And as spiritual beings redeemed, born again in Jesus, we're supposed to fight our flesh, lust, and desires. Because your flesh is not for your spirit. My flesh is not for my spirit. It stands adamantly opposed. Now, one day, listen, one day when I die, if I die today, my spirit goes to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. The spirit of Joel goes to be in, in heaven because it's redeemed in Jesus. My body will be uh, either put in the ground or, or uh, burned, and, and ashes will be spread out somewhere, which I prefer. Okay? And, and, and one day... I get a resurrected body. My body comes back to, and it's redeemed at that point, reunited with my alive spirit. And one day, my flesh and spirit will not be at war with each other because they will both be redeemed. Until that day, there is a battle within. What does it look like? Beautiful picture of it. Sad, but very accurate. 2 Samuel 11. We've all heard it. A man after God's own heart. David. King David. You remember the story, it says in chapter 11, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. He was a king. He's supposed to be going off to war. It says, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So the king was supposed to be out, but the king stayed in. Some interpreters believe that, that this was planned by David because he knew why he stayed home. But this is the way sin does. It just starts as one little decision, and it leads to something else. If you want to understand and see that physically, join us on Monday night, Mission 11B, when we feed and shower the homeless. You can interview them all. None of them will say, well, you know, when I was about nine years old, I was wondering, do I want to be like a welder? Or do I want to be a carpenter? Do I want to be a doctor? Do I want to be a lawyer? Maybe an accountant. Maybe I'm going to be an insurance salesman. You know, you know I think... I want to be an alcoholic, hooked on crack cocaine, living under a bridge, eating hamburgers from, from Sturkey Hills on Monday night. They never would say that. But what happened is one decision, one temptation found justification in their life, and they bit into that, and it compounded, and that's the end result. And it's been that way since the garden. Listen to what happens in David. So David stayed home. He didn't go to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. No big deal. I should have been at war. I didn't go to war. I'm just walking around outside my palace. Now, this is from the roof. He saw a woman bathing. Okay, still no big deal. Man, I'm, this is bad timing. Wrong place, wrong time. And the woman was beautiful. That's a double whammy, wrong time, wrong place. And David now sent someone to find out about her. Bam! The enemy within. There's no devil, physical devil, lurking around, you know, saying, David, looky Bathsheba. You know, whatever the devil. I don't know how he talks. I mean, just whatever. Okay? Watch too much TV? I don't know. Okay? But here's what I'm saying. He, he's not there. He doesn't have a friend saying, hey, I, I know her. I, 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 I can get her up here in your presence. No. David says, uh, sent someone to find out. How does that unfold now? What started so subtle, 
I'm not going to war. You go for me. I mean, I'm the king. I have paid my dues. I'm staying at the house. You all can handle this. Led to what? A visit, an encounter, a pregnancy, a cover-up plot, a murder, death of a baby, and a nation in crisis. You see? And it all began by this subtle enemy within who rose up. David stopped protecting the spiritual side of who he was. And he started being more concerned about the container, the flesh side of who he was. So temptation leading to justification. Number two, indignation leading to confrontation. Indignation is anger. Anger leading to a confrontation or to an encounter. I would call this confront the enemy within. Just call it what it is. It says in verse 6, Nehemiah speaking, I was angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. Listen, sometimes we should be angry. Sometimes you should be angry. Sin should make you angry. Sin should bother you. Why? Because it bothers God. Your sin caused God death on a cross. That should anger you. It should anger you about your own sin. It, it, let me say this. Isn't it easier to get angrier about somebody else's sin? Like if you hear about a pedophile, that should anger us all. If you hear about a bully beating up on a kid in school, that should anger us all. Okay? When, when you hear about these, these heinous crimes, and it should anger us, right? It should anger us. But sometimes when we get up in the morning, we're brushing our teeth, and we look at ourselves in the mirror, it should anger us that we commit sins every day, that we could care less about our spiritual protection because we're more concerned about what's on the outside, satisfying flesh. You say, well, I didn't think we were supposed to get angry. Yes, you are. It's okay to be angry. Okay? Jesus got angry. In the Bible, Jesus shows up at the temple. They had tables set up where they were selling sacrificial animals. So what would happen, a family would show up and say, I've got these doves and I've got this goat or whatever. And they'd say, yeah, those are not good enough. So you can take those home with you, but we're going to sell you some sacrificial animals or whatever. Jesus shows up. He turned the tables over and he ran them all off. Okay, It's an emotion. Anger is no different than happiness or sadness. It's an emotion. And it's okay to be angry. There's some things that should anger you. Sin should anger you about yourself and about others. The Bible actually says in Ephesians 4, 26, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So how do you, how do you get angry and yet sin not? How do you do that? Okay, I'm going to show you because Nehemiah taught us. So here's what it says in verse 7. Hearing this, I considered these things carefully, and then I registered a complaint with the wealthy and the officials. When something bothers you so much it moves you to anger, consider it carefully. Evaluate the situation. Don't fly off the handle. Now, let me just ask you. we got a lot of married people in here. Anybody ever flew off the handle uh, with your spouse? Okay, now put your hands down. Anybody have a spouse who has flown off the handle on you more than you flew off the handle on her or him? Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we we're just kidding. We we're just kidding. Okay, now, so here's where I'm at in my relationship after 34 years of marriage, okay? My wife is right a lot. She, I think she was born sort of birth, after birth, she realized she was right. She never made a B in her whole life, okay? That means she's good at being right. I made some Bs. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, could have been a C or worse. I'm okay. I've made. I'm. I'm okay being wrong sometimes. She can't handle it. Okay, she can't. She can't handle the truth. Okay, she. 
She, she don't like being wrong. Kendra, I'm telling the truth. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, you know, you right. And I, I've, I, 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 I established a good foundation. You are right a lot, okay? So when I know she's wrong, this is what I've learned. It ain't my job to tell her. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? So, so I just, I listen. I try to listen. Caitlin and Kelsey know this. When she's talking, and boy, she's presenting her case, and I'm, I'm convicted otherwise, I just say, yeah. And she goes, well, you believe, you, you agree with me, don't you? <sighs> See, that's a compromised spot. If I say, yes, I'm lying. If I say, no, it's game on. Well, we just kind of differ. Well, well, hold on. Why are we different? So here we go. So now this, this, this court is now in session. We've got to figure this thing out. Okay? Now, all I'm saying is this. There's been times in our conversation, she would agree with this, where, where things went south in a hurry because we didn't stop and consider what was making us angry. And so we said things that we shouldn't have said because we didn't pause, okay, and just say, okay, I need to consider what's being said, and I need to consider what I'm getting ready to say. I need to consider where this thing might go, okay? And that's how you control the anger that is within you. Most often it doesn't happen on the highway because we ain't got time, okay? They just cut you off, and so bam, it's right there. If I consider it, they're gone, and I won't be able to tell what I think, okay? Anybody blow your horn at anybody this week? Just me? Oh, you did too? Thank you, Heidi. Okay, Clint, good. That's three. Okay, the only ones. Okay, a lady was on a cell phone, drove right in front of me. She, I, I don't know what she was thinking. I, and, I mean, I had to lock them up. So, I like this is going to help me. I'm blowing my horn. What is I don't help nothing. Okay, it didn't help anything. But I didn't have time to stop and consider, so I lost the battle. Now, now Jesus said it's okay to be angry, but we cannot sin in it. Let's go on. It says in verse 7, So I said to them, Each one of you is seizing collateral from your own countrymen. Because of them, I called for a great public assembly. And I said to them, To the extent possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who have been sold to Gentiles, but now you yourselves want to sell your own countrymen so that we can then buy them back? And they were utterly silent and could find nothing to say. In verse 9, here it is. Then I said, This thing you're doing is wrong. Now, I quote my grandson a lot. A couple times I'll quote him today. Here's one. Judson would say, be kidding me right now. I mean, that's what Nehemiah said. Be kidding me right now. I mean, he said, seriously, how did we get to this place where you're more concerned about the flesh, the physical side, your, your, your sustenance, accumulating your wealth. Meanwhile, we're trying to build the spiritual part of who our nation is, the hub, if you will, Jerusalem, the centerpiece of God hanging out with us. And you're more worried about accumulating wealth and taking it from your own uh, people group. Sometimes people just need to step in and say, that's wrong. You see, we live in a world that wants gray. We want to walk around in a fog. I did student ministry for years and I had to <coughs> handle it all the time where a student would come and say, hey, I got a question for you. I said, yeah. I said, uh, is it okay if I kiss my girlfriend? I'm like, I don't know. Is it? And they well, I, I think it is. Okay, well, uh, then it must be okay. Why? What, 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 what do you mean by kiss her? Well, you know, just we, we like each other. Just a kiss. Okay. Well, it could be okay, but it could not be okay. All right? If you define that. And so we would get in that conversation. You know what they were looking for? They wanted to know what they could do and still not go to hell. That's the bottom line. 
They wanted to know how far you can go with your boyfriend and girlfriend and not be under the judgment of God. They wanted to walk around in this gray, foggy area. Meanwhile, God is saying, I don't live in the gray, foggy area. I call black, black, white, white, truth, truth, lies, lies. And it's right here in this book. And so at the end of the conversation, I would say, well, you know what? You say it's okay to kiss, but won't you find me some scripture where you, there's not a whole lot in there, unless you're giving a holy kiss. That ain't what they're talking about, okay? The back seat in the dark is not a holy kiss, just saying. And so, so this would tell us, but what we want, we want opinions and ideas and philosophies and what's, what's in vogue and cool and popular instead of living in a place. And sometimes people just need to show up and say, hey, guys, we can't do that. That's just plain wrong. And, and it can land on tender ground, and you could have a fight on your hands. But if you do like Nehemiah, you realize you have a reason to be angry. You drop back and consider the situation, pray about it, and then present it. You've staged it for success rather than failure. So he says, should you conduct yourselves in the fear of our God in order to avoid the reproach of the Gentiles who are enemies? Verse 10, even I and my relatives. So Nehemiah says, I've done some of the same things, so I'm, I'm guilty too. But let us abandon this practice of seizing collateral. Verse 11, this very day return to them their fields, their vineyards, their olive trees, their houses, along with the interest that you are exacting from them on the money, the grain, the wine, and the olive oil. He says, listen, from this day forward, guys, we're in this gig together. Let's drive a stake in the ground and let's not do the wrong that we've been doing moving forward. That's where it lands. Just accept, okay, bingo, hello, I'm aware, sirens are, are sounding, lights are flashing, this is wrong. God, thank you for illuminating it. Now, God, help me move forward and not continue in the same practice. So, which leads us to the next point, illumination leading to reparation. Illumination means it's just lit up. An awareness have come, has come. Reparation means you make right what is wrong. This means battle the enemy within. Verse 12, so they replied, okay, we will return these things and we will no longer demand anything from them. We will do just as you say. Then I called the priest and made the wealthy and the officials swear to do what had been promised. I also took out my garment and I said, in this way may God shake out from his house and his property every person who does not carry out this matter. In this way may he be shaken out and emptied. You know what he's saying? When you know that it's wrong, own it. Don't just admit it. That's repentance. Change your mind. It means now do otherwise. I want, I want you to know this is how you battle the enemy within. This is how you make good what has been made bad. You overcome evil with good. Don't grow weary of doing good. You just keep, you just keep pouring good. On the damage, just keep pouring the good because you overcome evil with good. Zacchaeus is a good example. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? Somebody was telling me it might have been Clark and Kelsey. They were somewhere and they were teaching the song of, of, of Zacchaeus. Now, who remembers this song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Some of y'all raised my hand for him. It's like, I know Zacchaeus' song. I got it. Okay. Now, who don't know Zacchaeus' song? Raise your hand. Yeah, there you go. Well, let me teach you, Zacchaeus. Well, no, that's got some little... Here, so here's the thing. They didn't know the song. Okay, well, the story is this. There's Zacchaeus who's a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he, he wanted to see Jesus, so what did he do? Climbed up what? 
sycamore tree, okay? And because he wanted to see this Jesus that everybody's talking about. Now, he's a tax collector. He's a thief. He, he's abusing the system. Jesus knows it. Jesus calls him out of the tree. He illuminates his situation. He says, Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. Why? Because I'm going to your house today. He says, I'm going to your house today, and we're going to have dinner together. So he gets over to his house, and while he's there, Zacchaeus, the tax-collecting thief, realizes he's in the presence of God Almighty in the flesh, whose name is Jesus. And he's convicted of all that he's done. And here's the proper response. In verse 8 of chapter 19 of Luke, it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and I have che- if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Why? Because he's overcoming evil by doing good. Romans 12, 21. That's the way it works. See, we stop. We shortchange the process often. We confess it. We own it. But then we don't do anything about it. it it's like if somebody, a lot of times when people battle an addiction, whether it's pornography or alcohol or pills or whatever it might be, relationship, we say, God, I want you to take that away. I repent of my sin. Take it away. And, but there, the reason we were doing that, because there's a void that's trying to be filled by that stuff. And if we don't fill that void with something good, we do not overcome the evil because we have not put any good in its place. And so we keep falling to the same temptation, the same proclivity over and over and over. So we've got to learn to repent and and then overcome that evil void with good. And then lastly, adoration leading to restoration. We've got to conquer the enemy within. And I want you to know today, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, maybe you focused on the flesh side, the physical existence of who you are, okay? I want you to know it's not too late. You start focusing on developing your wall, your Jerusalem, your representation, your presence of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual side of who you are. You start developing that and stop worrying about the things on the outside. This is, this is just carnal flesh. It's not going anywhere. Okay, short of the rapture and we get a, 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 an early departure, our body dies and gets put in the grave. So focus on what matters, on that inner person, the spiritual side of who you are. Here's how it ends in this passage. It says, so all the assembly said, so be it. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they promised. That's what happens. We become aware of who we are. We become aware of a situation that God's word and then the Holy Spirit says that's wrong. And so we say, God, I don't want that. I, I, I don't want that in my life. And now that I'm aware of it, woe is me. I am, as I would say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, living among people who are unclean. We just realize how bad we are. We say, God, I don't know why you love me, but I truly believe you still love me. And I know you want to do something. You want to move me to a different place. I am your guy. I am your girl. Please move me to that place. And then all of a sudden we realize he will. All of a sudden we realize he wants to conquer that thing in our life. And all of a sudden we're moved to a place where we're brokenhearted that God would love us so much. And yet we're so stinking unlovable. 
When we get to that place where grace comes flooding in and guilt gets washed away, it moves us to a place like the people of Israel who say, so be it. I praise you, God, for the greatness of who you are. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on a cross to, to, to cover and erase yet another sin of mine. All of a sudden, our relationship with God is restored. The enemy is conquered, and the wall of our spiritual life begins to grow and develop once again. So as we close, <clears throat> there's an enemy within. And he's closer than we like to admit. It's easier to, to admit it's our spouse sometimes or our children or other people in our world. And sometimes they play the part. But the bottom line is, there's an enemy that is at war in each one of us. And I think sometimes we just need to own that. We don't need to debate whether there's really a bad side to us. We need to conquer it by developing the spiritual side of who we are. I, I close with this story because it's, it, to me it's a perfect picture of not realizing the reality that something is really us. Last week I, I had my grandson at my house, he's four, and we were playing in the front yard and we have a very uh, noisy neighborhood I guess, and echoes are everywhere. And he said something real loud, he said, Papa, Papa, it came back to him, and he, man, he, he got him, he's like, who said that? He sat on my front porch. I videoed it on my phone. And he said, hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. I said, hey, buddy, is that your echo? He looked at me and says, no, it's a boy. And I said, that boy is you. He said, no. And then he said, you can hear me, 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 me. Hey. There it is. So yesterday, he was over at the house, and I'd given him a ride on the lawnmower. That's what he loves to do. And we got back, and he thought he'd see if the little boy's still there. He said, hey, 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 hey. what's your name? name, name. You can hear me. me. And it's, I love it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because here's what it is. He doesn't get that that voice crying back at him is really his voice just coming back to him. And one day he'll understand, he'll get that. That's me. And for some of us, we've been waiting too long simply to realize that enemy within is me. And we just need to say, God, swell up my spiritual me. Let my spiritual me grow a spine, grow some fist grow some tenacity and wage war against this old flesh container so that my life will count for you and mean something from this day forward I'm, I'm, I'm battling I'm warring I want to be your man I want to be your woman I want to be your boy I want to be your girl use me help me in this fight because it's real and I know it now I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want you to know 
Many of us here today have expressed our faith in Jesus. We've asked him to be our savior. We're trying to make him Lord, and that's what it's all about. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. Get in it. Surrender to it. Go in. Go big or go home. Sink your teeth into everything he is and let him empower you and use you and change you. And then there's some here who have never given themselves to God. Maybe they've heard a mind story, a gray matter story of Jesus. Maybe they've said a prayer. Maybe on this day, in this moment, you realize Jesus is not in my life. I really don't think I'm a child of God, born again in Jesus. If that's you, this could be your day of salvation. Where you simply say, God, here I stand, here I sit. I realize my sinful condition. And all of a sudden, I'm aware that you're inviting me into your kingdom. And all of a sudden, I'm aware that if I simply surrender my life, my goals, my ambition, and my sinful condition to you, you will wash them clean in Jesus' blood. Fill me with your spirit and save me. I receive that today, Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving somebody like me. Thank you for loving me for all of eternity. And from this moment forward, I want you to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. I want to live for you. I want my spiritual side to swell up and to fight back. Use me, God. Thank you for hearing my prayer. I'm forever indebted to the greatness of who you are. In Jesus' name.